Bow in prayer. Father, as we gather here today with no thought of being invaded or attacked or arrested or threatened, we pray that you would help us to be aware that that's happening all over the world today and uh, help us, Father, to gain insight into this incident from the early chapter of the uh, the infant church that had been birthed there in Jerusalem. We pray that you might help us to understand um, your sovereign ways and that we might become a people whose boldness is evident in Lake Grove and all this surrounding area in which we live. Toward that end, we pray that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're in our chapter, we're in our book and study of the book of Acts, and you recall that the God had answered the prayers and had kept his promise to send the Holy Spirit, and sure enough, on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Immediately, they had the proclamation of the gospel. Going forth, we had 3,000 people added to the church. Along with that, you have wonders and signs that begin to take place through the apostles. And then there's an amazing miracle which we read about in chapter 3 in which a crippled man who had been spent years there begging in the temple complex is miraculously healed. And so he's walking around with John and Peter and the other apostles and clearly the crowds are filled with wonder and amazement. And then we read that the early believers were characterized by a passionate and... Um, ongoing love for God that was evident in how they conducted themselves, and they also had a love for each other that was a demonstrative love, a love that was shown by the way in which they spent time eating with each other and, and helping those among them who had need and sharing whatever they had to make sure all needs were met. What a season of blessing. What an incredible, memorable time of spiritual awakening is recorded for us in this early part of church history. It's almost indisputable that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ energized, emboldened, and empowered these early Christians to be an effective witness there in Jerusalem. But wait a minute. Not everybody was very pleased about this. Not everyone supported the gospel witness there in the temple courts. There's a group called the Sadducees, a very small number of leaders, obviously well-to-do, well-educated people who were really very much um, aligned with the Roman authorities. That's how they sort of kept their positions of power. And so this group of liberal, Jewish, materialistic leaders, they were greatly disturbed about two things, I think. This is my conjecture. First thing is, this message that they keep proclaiming, these Christians keep talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's a problem for them. Because the Sadducees, if you look elsewhere in Scripture, you will find, particularly chapter 23, verse 8 of Acts, also in the Gospels, the Sadducees denied anything that was supernatural. Therefore, they denied any thought or any kind of, of uh, real, reality of a resurrection. They denied that. And so, and angels and evil spirits, all those things they discounted. 
And so to hear this message go on and on is a problem with them. It, it's sort of, it, it's rocking their boat. But more than that, when you think about the growing popularity of the church, notice what it says there in chapter 4, verse 4. The group went from 3,000 people who had been added to the church, and now we read it has expanded from the small collection of 120 to 3,000, and now there are 5,000 men. It's a specific males. That is, there are 5,000 men plus women, plus teens, plus kids. Some people have estimated it's probably more like 10,000 followers of Jesus. It is spreading like wildfire. Clearly, that's a problem for those who were in control, those who did, were threatened by this very quick-spreading and growing movement. So what took place then as we read the book of Acts, starting here in chapter 4, going to chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, is that there is a strong pushback. There is clearly developing here a classic power struggle between the authorities, the religious authorities, and the, and the authority of Jesus and his followers as early Christians, who were his witnesses. So as we come to chapter 4 and look further into it, we find what we all sort of know maybe in our heads, and that is that spiritual conflict is inevitable. There's no such thing as spiritual neutrality in this world. It is Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 12, whoever is not for me is what? Against me. So there's a number of people who are against Jesus showing their colors. And so what we have is spiritual warfare taking place in chapter 4 and ongoing in the, in the book of Acts that the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are engaged in a battle. There's a clash going on between the two forces. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to consider the two approaches that are taken by the members of each of these kingdoms. Okay, so there's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, and then there's the kingdom of light, the followers of Jesus. Point number one, the world is against the, world against the church's witness. We see that clearly happening here. And what we see from those who are allied against the church and its witness is hostile opposition. Hostile opposition. Now, what would you expect if you were a member of this liberal, religious group of leaders? What are you going to do if you have your authority, your political and your religious authority being undermined by a band of what we could call fanatics, let's say, or people who are so determined, nothing seems to be intimidating them, and they are expanding and they are multiplying rapidly? What are you going to do? Well, to use a phrase that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, they're going to engage in battle according to the flesh. That is, they're going to take up weapons that are used by the same civil authorities and people who are not having nothing to do with uh, uh, religious uh, groups. They're going to use intimidation is one of the ways that they're going to try to stop this group. Intimidation and imprisonment. Those are the two weapons, in a sense, they're going to use against them here in chapter 4. And so they're doing their best to try to contain the message. They're trying to take John and Peter out of the equation. They arrest them overnight and they hold them in this jail cell. 
And the leaders give some time now for them to size up, what are we going to do next? And they realize they got some issues they can't really control. That is, there's a man walking around who for 40 years was crippled and unable to walk, and he is jumping up and down. He is walking. He is giving praise to God. He's there in the temple courts, and they can try their best to try to contain this group's activities, but they don't, they're, they're, they're going to try to limit in whatever way they can with threats and prohibitions. They're going to say, listen here, we don't want to have this exposure anymore of things that we did two months ago. We don't want that paraded around anymore. We don't want that to be talked about anymore publicly about how we are the ones who are involved in making sure that Jesus uh, had such a, a phony trial and unjust um, um, interview with him and, and send him right forward onto the Romans to be crucified. We don't want that to get talked about anymore. And we're threatened by all this thought of your taking our power away. And if you slip forward there in chapter 5, verse 17, if you want to get a little bit of insight into what goes on in the hearts and the minds of these spiritual religious leaders, chapter 5, verse 17, it tells us that they were jealous they were jealous of the popularity of these people. That there were so many people thronging and following them and committing themselves to them. It's clear that there's a sense of disillusionment with the powers to be that have been there for a long time, these Sadducees. Well, it's not exactly sure why they're doing what they're doing here. I think it's a combination of all these things. But let me offer a couple of observations. One thing we need to be very clear on as we read about this pushback against the church in Acts 4 is that persecution is no novelty. I think I have a quote there in your notes to that effect. Because Jesus was familiar with this himself, and he had prepared his disciples for this kind of reality. He said they were going to face strong opposition, and so when Jesus sent his disciples on one of his training missions, you know, he would every so often he would send them out and say the 72 would go out and do some things on ministry training missions. In Luke chapter 10, he described the fact that he was sending them out. He says, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. What a description of the kind of opposition they're going to face and dangers. And then in John chapter 15, Again, only two months ago, in the time frame of what was happening here for these disciples, upper room, Jesus gives them a heads up. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You can just bank on it. And sure enough, it's starting to happen. And then there's an amazing text there in Luke 21. I don't know if you have time to find that text quickly there, but Luke 21, verse 12 Another interesting bit of warning and preparation that Jesus gave his disciples in which he said this. They, the religious leaders, will lay their hands on you. That doesn't mean like praying over someone. No, that means they're going to arrest you against your will. They're going to lay hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you over to the synagogues and prisons bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to be prepared beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom 
which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Again, I say, Jesus himself experienced this kind of opposition. His disciples will as well. We're not to be surprised. Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he gives more specifics as to what is that going to look like. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So now we have, it's Jesus who was persecuted. It was the prophets who were persecuted. And his followers as Christians will be persecuted as well. So it's nothing new. And secondly, I would say, or thirdly, there is so much irony in this account here in chapter 4 regarding this persecution against the church. Here you have religious leaders arresting John and Peter, the leaders, apparently, put them in prison, and eventually have those two men stand before the whole council. It's like 70 or 71 of these very elite, uh, very well-to-do, very well-educated gentlemen. And here he has them stand before them. And in so doing, in having them stand before them and having arrested them, these council members now are what? They are going to receive the witness of two bold Christ followers who are telling the truth in love. Here's this healed cripple, the man who is now providing compelling evidence that Jesus indeed had been raised from the dead because that's what Peter and John are claiming is that this man is walking around. Why? Through the power of Jesus who was raised from the dead. And so Jesus clearly is continuing his work in their midst. And they're hearing and they have to face the reality of this obvious evidence. And then the opponents that they stood before also saw the confidence. Look at verse 13. They saw the confidence of John and Peter. They're not intimidated. They're not afraid by this impressive group before them. And that that these these council members perceived that the men were not formally trained like most rabbis. These are people who have never been to divinity school somewhere and they could tell interestingly enough verse 13 that these men had spent time with Jesus I don't have time to unpack what all that must have meant but that's a very interesting statement is it not they had spent time with Jesus I would dare say that the reaction that they noticed in these two gentlemen as they are now beginning to threaten them as they're beginning to try to intimidate them They looked at the reaction of how they responded to all this. They're not afraid, and they're still speaking the truth. They haven't changed their tune at all. And in the providence of God, the attempts of these religious leaders to intimidate and to hinder the spread of the gospel actually gave an opportunity for the gospel to be made known to them on the council. That's ironic, isn't it? I find that very ironic. And isn't that interesting the way God works? Down through the ages, believers have been burned at the stake. They have been beheaded. They have been tortured. They've been killed for the sake of Christ. 
And yet the church's witness continues on and expands. And I gave you a quote there in your notes that Tertullian had this observation, which is so accurate if you know church history, and that is the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Rather than viewing persecution and opposition to the Christian faith as a hindrance to gospel witness, God has shown again and again that as his witnesses who are suffering for his sake often are given what? Open doors of opportunity to declare the gospel when they're being put on the spot and intimidated and threatened and many times they're harmed, incredibly so. And when the opponents of Jesus, Jesus' followers, when they mock or when they insult or revile us, I assure you, they're not really looking to hear gracious words that might come from the mouth of a follower of Jesus. They're not looking to see the courageous displays of these witnesses as they say, no, I'm obeying Jesus. That's what I do, and that's what I live for, and that's what I love to do. It's a powerful witness to them. And the persecution of the church, rather than destroying it or eliminating it, only serves to purify the church, to strengthen the church as it's refined. I'm sure many of you know that in 1949, the political situation in China changed so that the Marxists began to put tremendous pressure against anyone who claimed to be a Christian. They sought and have sought to eliminate any kind of religious expression in this country for years and years. And through the 50s and 60s, the church had to go underground. And so they began to develop and form house churches, uh, places that they would gather secretly with great uh, sense of danger involved in their meeting together. And in order to try to stifle and to eliminate the church, what has happened? The church, they estimated the population of Christians in China in 1949, estimated around 2 million people. Guess what? As a result of the severe intimidation and uh, persecution that they have shown to believers, estimates now, and they don't really know exactly, but the estimates are now that the population of Christians in China is well over 100 million and ever-expanding. They have been refined, they have been purified, they have been made holy through this process, and the church is tremendously vital in the country of China. We have much to learn from them. So there's some irony there. Thirdly, I would like to also say there's some limits as to what the worldly authorities or opponents of the Christian faith can do. There's some limits. You see, these Sadducees could not dismiss the indisputable evidence of this healed, crippled man, the healing of the crippled man in the name of Jesus. They were incapable of disproving the resurrection of Jesus, or I'm sure, I assure you, they sure would have done it if they could have. And they were able to only do what? Well, if you read it, chapter 5, verse 40, if you go skip one page over, next chapter, they not only threaten, but eventually they're going to harm them. They're going to inflict harm. They had these apostles flogged. We'll talk more about that later. They can take away worldly goods that belong to the followers of Jesus. They can even take their life. 
But Jesus reminds us they can never take your soul. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. My point here is that there are some limits as to what they can do, and we must always bear that in mind. Because I believe that we who have enjoyed the privileges of the freedom of religion we've had in this country, we need to be prepared. There's a shifting of the tides that is happening very rapidly in our culture and society today. Do you know that what you may have written or said publicly, whether it's online or maybe you've published a book or you have an article out there somewhere on the topic of same-sex marriage may cost you your job. It's already happened. People who get fired for what they've maybe written which is a biblical point of view. Someone involved in a campus ministry may lose their sanction to meet on that campus of that school if you don't agree to an all-inclusiveness of the university regulations that say a person can be the leader of that group and not buy into all of that, what, that leader, what that group stands for because somehow you're showing prejudice or discrimination. Time is coming when the offense of biblical gospel may result in tremendous financial hardship for many of us I believe it's not too long we're going to lose a tax-exempt status. There's going to be a lot of pressure being put upon churches who do, don't, do not abide by certain regulations and expectations that the government has for those who practice their faith. These things are already happening. Being a witness for Jesus does not make us immune for suffering for Christ. More than not, it's the reason that we are made to suffer. But what? But the bottom line is that when we do suffer as witnesses, we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. He suffered. We join him in those sufferings. Philippians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1. There's more we could say there, but I wanted to move really to the more significant part of this text, and that is our second point, and that is to realize that the church involved in its witness to the world. I think there are three things I noticed in this text. That is wisdom, humility, and prayer. Wisdom, humility, and prayer. Now let's make sure we remind ourselves of the scene here. We have Peter and John standing in the midst of the same group of leaders who have just two months ago condemned Jesus to death for blasphemy, even though they had no evidence to back it up to the point of where it deserved to be carried out by the Romans. But here's Peter and John, and they're told by this group, don't speak, don't teach anything else in the name of Jesus. Notice that these two men respectfully responded. They did not show disrespect. But they also made it clear that they're not going to compromise their allegiance to Jesus Christ. They didn't sort of pretend and say, oh yes, okay, we'll do whatever you say, pretend to submit, and then later purposely disobey. No, they didn't do that. They made it very clear that in this instance, they were ready to commit civil disobedience. You'll see it also in chapter 5, and just uh, uh, repeat the same thing again. But before we draw any kind of wrong inferences by what they've done here, by their intent to disregard the Sadducees' prohibition, I want us to understand very briefly here, what is the biblical view of civil authority? 
what is the God's view of those who are given authority and power to punish people and to uh, enact laws and enforce those laws? Well, turn to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. We don't read the entire passage, but let's just read the first verse of Romans 13, which you've got to understand this so that we don't uh, totally misunderstand what's happening here and think we have the right to do whatever we want anytime we want. Romans 13.1 says, Every person, including Christians, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Well, why is that? Now, he's talking now right in a time when Rome clearly was the governing authority. And I can, be, I can assure you, uh, the Christians were really beginning to feel the pressure as Paul wrote the book of Romans uh, as Nero and others were cranking up the pressure against the Christians in persecution. He gives the reason why. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So what he's saying is that God has put the various civil authorities in place, and they are there by God's design and plan. Christians then are to submit to the governing authorities. That's taught there in Romans 13.1. However, God has delegated limited authority to kings and rulers and local government officials. And rebelling against the civil authority is to rebel against God, except, with two exceptions, except when that governing authority demands that you sin against God, who is the ultimate authority. For example, when a local or national authority would require you as a believer to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands you to do, then you must obey God rather than human authorities. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. You see, the state has limited delegated authority. Now, I won't take time to unpack too many of these, but there's a couple of examples I'd like to offer to you. Biblical examples, the Hebrew midwives, for example, are helpful in seeing this illustrated. They were commanded by the Egyptian Pharaoh because of his concern over the growing population of the Israelites and who were enslaved by them. And therefore, they were beginning to sort of be intimidated by the number of Israelites. So the Egyptian Pharaoh says to these midwives, when the baby boy is born, you are to put that baby boy to death. Infanticide. You're to kill this, this baby. And we read in Exodus 1 verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. It's an example of civil disobedience. Then you fast forward into the times of the prophets in Daniel chapter 3. We read about three men. What were their names? That's right. Those are the Babylonian names. What were the Hebrew names? One was right. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are their Hebrew names. I encourage you to learn those names, not just their Babylonian names. Anyway... They refused to bow down to this golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a megalomaniac, a person who, that means they're all into themselves big time to the point where they think they're almost God. 
And so he sets up this gold statue and he's enacted a law that says that every time you hear this certain kind of music played, you're to bow down to this image. And so these three gentlemen said, sorry, we're not doing that. And so that raised issues. They haul them off to the authorities, to the king. And so the king interviews them. He says, now listen here, do you understand the consequences? Do you realize you're going to be put into a fiery furnace? Which means you'll be put to death. That's what he's suggesting. And this is their response to the king. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he does not, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. What are they doing? They're saying, we're not going to play this game. You're telling us to do something we're commanded not to do in the scriptures. Again, in each of these examples, including Acts 4, choosing to obey God did not result in the complete elimination of, of the consequences that they were threatened with. Now in Acts 4, they, did, they were let go. But uh, they did put those three guys in the furnace, but God spared them from that. But that isn't always the case. When Christians choose to disobey civil authorities in those situations where they choose to obey God rather than man, God does not shield them necessarily from all the consequences of those choices. And I would just recommend that you read a chapter or two from Fox's Book of Martyrs if you want to be reminded of the awful penalty that some people have had to endure in being put to death for not conforming to the pressure that was put upon them when the allegiance to God trumped other ways in which they were being commanded to do what the king said. So this raises a question in my mind. What then would help a believer, help just an average Christian? What will strengthen them? What will help them have greater resolve when the pressure is being put upon us to compromise? What kind of wise response can we make when we're threatened with persecution or trying to be intimidated, or people making fun of us, or they mock us, or they sort of curse us to our face? And look at the answer I believe that's taught in this text here, letter B in your notes. It is corporate prayer. Verse 23, when they'd been released, they went to their own companions, they reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them, all of their regulations and threats and uh, obligations now to stop speaking that way. And then they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. I find that to be fascinating. First of all, as I think about this, John and Peter did not take their stand alone. They are joining with other believers. They are part of a fellowship. What happens to them happens to everybody. They share it with the whole church. You'll notice also that they are aware, obviously, of their vulnerability. They're aware of the spiritual warfare that they're facing. And so they join together with their boys, brothers and sisters in Christ, and they begin to cry out to God together. Guess what? If you begin to start feeling pressure from the world, you stop arguing over the color of the carpet in a church building. You don't care about mundane, secondary matters that have really no big deal difference. It unifies the church when you begin to be persecuted for the faith. And so they unify themselves together in prayer, and the only one who can embolden 
a follower of Jesus Christ in the face of opposition and persecution is their own creator, their own sustainer. It is God himself, as they acknowledge in the text right there. O Lord, as you who did make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So I believe that they're by faith entrusting their souls and their situation to God. Let's look at several observations about this prayer. First of all, notice that they prayed confidently, knowing that God was sovereign and supreme. They prayed confidently that God was sovereign and supreme. Look at verse 24 and verse 29, the way they addressed God. They said, O Lord, verse 29, and now, Lord, take note of their threats. It's another way of saying, and now our master, the one who's in charge of all things, the one to whom we submit and that we admit we are not the one who's in charge. You are the king, you're the master, you're the Lord. They're saying essentially that God is in control. Control of every event. He rules over the kings, the civil authorities of the earth. Look at Daniel 4.17 sometime and jot that one down and many others. There's no one who can thwart God's purposes, Job says in Job chapter 42. Even the diabolical dealings two months earlier for these Christians, how these religious and civil authorities could somehow connive together and put Jesus to death on that cross. Verse 28, they're reminded, it's still under the sovereign hand of God. It was still under the plan of God that these things happened. What seemed like Satan's victory proved to be God's greater redemptive triumph. All the events are under God's sovereign plan. So that then begs the question, how does one gain that kind of confidence in the sovereignty of God? You say, well, I worry all the time. I get all uptight. I get all frustrated because I'm looking at what happens and I begin to sort of wonder, where is God? They didn't wonder. Look what they did here. They're, they're, they're what? They're reciting Scripture in their prayers. It's clear that the Scriptures is what governs their thoughts, their thinking, their perspective, their response. And may I just suggest to you, I'm not trying to suggest this is more important than Scriptures, okay? I am suggesting a good read of a book like Jerry Bridges' Trusting God is so jam-packed with Scriptures to try to help you see that God indeed is sovereign over everything. Everything. If you read this, he is so careful in laying it out there persuasively using the scriptures. Hopefully you'll reach that kind of conclusion and learn to trust him. But how do we gain uh, to have a heart to trust God and his sovereignty? I'm convinced the answer is what? Claim the word of God. Trust the word of God. Rely on the word of God. Their confidence in God's sovereign control was grounded in the God-breathed, inspired Word of God, and they're quoting here from Psalm 2. You say, why do I get so unnerved? Why do I get so afraid in this world? I'm convinced some of us have forgotten and lost sight. God is sovereign over everything. Secondly, I would also like to suggest regarding this prayer, notice that the way in which they sought God 
is that they did so with submissive, yielded hearts. They did not come to God and approach him as if they're telling God what to do. But notice it says in verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of our threats and grant that your, what? Bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Your bondservants, the lowest servant of that culture and society. We who are just what? We're just your humble bondservants. They're slaves. They made no demands of God, only a humble request. And notice that they did not even ask for safety. They did not ask for favor from the authorities, which I probably would have said, Lord, can you grant us a little favor from these people, please? They didn't ask for that. They're asking for courage and boldness to faithfully carry out the assignment that you've given us. You've told us that we're to be your witnesses in Jerusalem. Now help us be bold in being a witness for you. That's a humble request of someone who knows I've been given a task. Help me do it, Lord. Help me do it. I don't have time to unpack this a whole lot further, but let me just say this. Notice the result of this prayer time together. Verse 31. An earthquake shook the building where they were praying. Now, is that surprising? No, earthquakes happen in Jerusalem and in, and in Israel quite often, actually. It is significant of its timing, obviously. And commentators, as I read up on this, began to su- have suggested that the shaking of this earthquake signified God's presence among his people. And they used the example of Mount Sinai when the whole mountain was shaking in Exodus 19 and on the occasion of Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was commissioned to speak to all these corrupt Israel Israel kings, kings of Judah. And so could it be that God is saying, listen, I'm here with you. I've heard your prayer. And what does God do? He fills them with his spirit, enabling them to go speak in the face of further threats, And you say to yourself, why is prayer such a big deal dealing with spiritual conflict? Well, Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 6, a very long passage about spiritual warfare, put on the armor of God. Then how does he conclude the whole text? He says, be sure to pray for everyone, all kinds of prayers for all the saints, because we all need to be praying for each other to be what? He goes on to say, and pray for me too, that I might have boldness in making known the gospel. He prays for it twice, asks for it twice. When was the last time you asked to be bold as a witness for Christ? I'll conclude with this. Peter Cartwright was a, one of these traveling, circuit-riding preachers in Illinois back in the day, and he was an uncompromising man. He had left his state, home state of Tennessee. He went to this state to oppose slavery. And one Sunday morning when he was scheduled to preach, some of his deacons came up to him before the service and said, hey, listen, uh, Pastor Cartwright, he said, uh, the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, is in the congregation today. Please, please don't say anything to rile him. Don't say anything to, you know, offend the chief executive. 
So Cartwright stood up to preach and he said, quote, I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. Audience is shocked. They wondered how the president would respond to this. And so what happens at the end of the service? The president walked up to Cartwright and said, listen, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could, I could whip this world. He respected the courage of the man who spoke the truth. May God give us courage and boldness to follow him. Let's pray. Father, as we read this text of scripture, we again want to be very honest in saying, this is beyond us, Lord. Many of us, like myself, we really don't know what it is to suffer for Christ. We don't know what it is to be truly persecuted on a very profound level. None of us have spent probably a day in jail for having done something out of our desire to obey you. Yet, Lord, we know it's happening more and more, and it will continue to happen until you return. So we pray that you would help us when we deal with people who make fun of us, people who laugh, laugh us off, people who begin to question us and think of us as a fanatic. We pray, Lord, you'd help us not to back down, help us to have courage and boldness, help us to not try to uh, soft pedal the message of Christ, help us, Lord, to be brave and courageous and bold and to fill us with your spirit, we pray. And the more we think about what Jesus did for us and how he did not turn away, but was silent before the authorities as they accused him of all sorts of things falsely, we pray that we might, Lord, out of our love for him, find great joy and delight in expressing to him, expressing to those around us the glories of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.